Hello and welcome to Fraud Talk, the ACFE's monthly podcast. I'm Paul Kilby, the Editor-in-Chief of Fraud Magazine for the ACFE. And today I'm joined by Catherine Westmore, Senior Research Fellow for Centre for Financial Crime and Security Studies at the Royal United Services Institute. Uh, prior to joining uh, her current job, Catherine spent 15 years at PricewaterhouseCoopers, where she worked across the regulated sector advising institutions on how best to manage their financial crime risks and meet their regulatory. She also has experience uh, leading large and complex investigations into allegations of fraud, money laundering and corruption, both in the UK and overseas. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No, not at all. Um, Okay, well, just first, perhaps I'd like to start. um, Just I don't think many people no, at least in this country, in the US, I know what the Royal United Services Institute is. So I just wondered if you could perhaps explain what they do and your and your role there. Of course. So the Royal United Services Institute, or RUCI for short, um, is a military and defence think tank. Uh, we were founded in 1831 by the Duke of Wellington. So I've been working in this space for nearly 200 years. And over the last 200 years, as though the threats in those realms have expanded, so is our work. So we still do a lot of research in the traditional military space, but we also focus on things like organised crime, terrorism, cyber and financial crime and the threats that they pose to our national security. So within RUCI, I sit within our Centre for Financial Crime Security Studies, which is a research programme that was founded in 2014 to study the intersection of finance and security. We look across the range of illicit finance threats from terrorist financing, Uh, the use of finance by hostile states, financing of weapons of mass destruction, and of course, fraud uh, to help policymakers, regulators, and the private sector manage these types of threats better. Um, You are quite a, yes, quite quite a, Um, okay, so um, obviously just regarding fraud, um, you know, obviously the UK government's come out with this new fraud plan, seems quite comprehensive and they're throwing a fair amount of money at it I think and uh, so I just really wanted to get your thoughts on that plan uh, first of all and um, get a sense of why they're launching it launching it now um, and how it compares with past fraud plans. Yeah so this this new fraud strategy has been in the works for a while recognizing the huge amount of increase that there has been in fraud in the UK. Uh, It was already a big issue prior to the pandemic but what we saw in COVID was that fraud really accelerated and that includes fraud associated with pandemic relief schemes, the increased internal fraud risks with businesses uh, moving to hybrid working or remote working and the fact that all of us moved our lives online which afforded criminals a huge number of opportunities to scam us. This new strategy is, is really focused on that consumer type of scams so uh, the what we call APP or authorised push payment fraud. So where you're tricked into sending money to somebody, uh, to a fraudster who's posing as a genuine uh, person or, or business. And so this strategy looks really at those types of scams and includes more law enforcement responses to tackle the issue, working across the private sector with different industries to try and prevent frauds from happening at source. And then a lot of work around empowering the public to recognise frauds, report them more easily and improve the experience of victims when they have been defrauded. It's all underpinned by better use of uh, of data, more engagement at an international level and a bigger role for the intelligence services in trying to disrupt some of these networks of organised criminals behind a lot of the fraud. And yeah, there is a huge amount to like in this strategy. 
But given the scale of fraud in the UK, it's probably not enough to turn the tide. And one area where it's been particularly criticised is the lack of concrete actions for the tech sector in particular. And we see in the UK and, and globally that a huge amount of fraud starts on online platforms. Nearly 80% of those APP frauds that I mentioned uh, start online. And social media plays a huge role in things like phishing, identity theft, and some of the other enablers of fraud that we see. Okay, um, so obviously how, I mean, it seems, I, I'm just looking at this report, it's, uh, it says, I think, what, in 2022, an estimated 3.7 million incidents in England and Wales alone. Um, that's over 40% of all crime. Um, is, is that sort of beyond past statistics? I mean, how serious is fraud becoming in the UK? I mean, it's a massive issue. Yeah, at Conservative estimates, billions of pounds are being lost every year to fraud. The figures show that one in five businesses have been victims of fraud and that one in 15 of all adults have fallen victim to a scam. And as I'm sure most people know, that's probably an underestimate because so much fraud goes unreported as well. Right. And some of the stories that you hear from victims are heartbreaking. You know, people who've lost their whole life savings, having to sell their houses, driven to suicide. And as you say, it accounts for 40% of crime, yet less than 1% of police resources in the UK are dedicated to fraud. And so for every 100 or so successful frauds, it's estimated that there is one criminal prosecution. And it's been a hugely profitable area for criminals with little of no chance of them getting caught. Yeah, it seems overwhelming. Um, OK, uh, so I just wanted to just move on a little bit here um, onto some of the, you know, some of the reports that you've written uh, recently. Um, uh, you know, we look just looking uh, at some of the data sharing, perhaps issues that you've written about. Um, I think you've written in one of the reports. Uh, you know, fighting fraud is like trying to beat a jigsaw puzzle without knowing who has the next missing piece, um, which is probably a good good description. I just perhaps first of all, sort of, I know you've dedicated a lot of your time and effort into writing about data sharing. So I just wondered why you think that's so important. Um, and then perhaps after that, sort of give us some examples of the successes in data sharing and where there are gaps there, you know, where, where we could be doing more. Sure. I mean, data sharing is something that we at Rusi have been really interested in for the last 10 years or so. And it's one of the key topics, I think, at a global level. And for me, it's particularly important when it relates to fraud, because what we've seen over the last few years is an increased fragmentation in the in the banking industry. A lot of new entrants to the market, particularly fintechs and in the payment space, you've got the impact of value moving outside the traditional financial system into crypto, for example, plus some of the big tech firms moving into finance. So this means that when a bank, for example, is trying to detect fraudulent or suspicious activity, they only see a tiny part of the picture. And we've very much moved away from that idea of an individual or a business having one bank account and having a personal relationship with the relationship manager of that account or being known by local branch staff. So as a result, it becomes so much more important to share information across organisations to really, as you say, piece together that jigsaw. And there are some great examples in the UK and globally of some of the information sharing platforms that have been set up to allow banks, for example, to understand when they're onboarding a customer, whether that customer has been suspected of fraud. There are some really good examples in Europe of utilities that have been set up to allow a number of banks to pull together transactional data to identify themes and identify unusual activity and patterns. But there's always a lot more that we could be doing. And in particular, I think we need to find a way to tap into 
the large amount of data that exists in the broader system, so whether that's data the government holds, whether that's data the tech firms hold, that enable us to build that better picture of how criminals are operating, how they're targeting their victims, and how to identify interventions that can be made earlier to stop a lot of these frauds happening in the first place. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's quite a task. Um, okay, so uh, so I just want to perhaps uh, we could talk a little bit more about data sharing here. Um, I know, again, you've sort of written uh, in the absence of any legal or regulatory incentive to share data, um, it's easy to understand why it is often simpler to prevent the data sharing from happening rather than work through mechanisms for how data can be shared, particularly when multiple institutions are involved. Um, I just wondered if you could just talk a little bit about sort of regulatory and sort of legal, even behavioral barriers that uh, we face in regards to data sharing. I know um, I've written uh, a little bit about this. I, I talked to Michael Harowitz, who's the Inspector General who leads PRAC in the US, um, and he's talked um, publicly about this, how difficult it is to access data. Um, whether it's because you know people are concerned about data privacy or just simply there are just legal barriers there um so they're, they're obviously trying to change it here in the us but i just wanted in the uk you know there's a few cases sort of simulation on that front yeah yeah certainly and yeah that balance you know, that you mentioned between data sharing and the benefits but then data privacy on the other hand is a it's a really tough balance and it's one that countries around the world are grappling with what it means for them and the nature of that discussion and the nature of that balance is different in the US in the EU in the UK because of the different regimes that are in place different frameworks around data privacy and certainly from a, a UK perspective we have a data protection data privacy framework in place and it is one that allows for specific carve outs for sharing data for the purposes of preventing and detecting crime with the appropriate safeguards in place obviously but I guess to, to the point of your question, you know, just because something's allowed, it doesn't mean that organisations are actually doing it or that they feel comfortable from a risk appetite perspective. You know, we've seen data breaches lead to huge fines, huge reputational damage, and you can understand why some organisations are, are quite risk averse when it comes to sharing data. There can also be a lot of practical issues between organisations and businesses in sharing data. You know, issues, for example, with data quality, or with information being held in multiple legacy systems. So it's not always as easy as it is just taking your data, plugging it into a system and, and seeing what happens. All of that being said, you know, there's a huge amount of data that could be shared without compromising data privacy, for example. Uh, a lot of mechanisms for data sharing which are underexploited and underused. You know, there's a lot that could be done, for example, around sharing non-personal information like IP addresses of scammers or victims to identify patterns um, and to identify suspicious activity that's happening on accounts. Right, yeah. Well, there's, I know, like, for example, like Michael, Michael Harris was talking about just for simple things like uh, accessing social security numbers here, you know, uh, national insurance numbers, um, and just asking yes, no questions to the relevant agencies um, and just uh, just getting sort of basic answers rather than having a sort of database that they hold um, that, you know, compromise. Yeah, well, and I think that's a really, you know, and I think sometimes in the conversations about data sharing, um, 
we sometimes lose sight of the fact that it can be very, very simple sometimes. You don't need to have complicated technology solutions or complicated platforms. Sometimes it is just the discrete sharing of a couple of data points between private sector, public sector, between law enforcement and government, between you know, different sectors cross industry. And actually just sharing a couple of data points could make a huge amount of difference. Right, no, exactly. Um, are you, I mean, maybe you've sort of covered this a little bit, but are there sort of specific um, recommendations that you're sort of putting forward regarding data sharing um, at, at Rusi? Yeah, and I think a lot of it comes to me and a lot of our recommendations, I think, come out of the fact that what is really missing from a lot of the conversation around data sharing is real clarity as to what the outcomes are that we're looking for from sharing the data and a lack of incentives for many parts of the system to share information and fundamentally a lack of trust between organisations in the system. So one of our, our key recommendations in this area is that there needs to be strong messaging from policymakers so that from a legislative perspective, from a policy, from a regulatory guidance perspective, all of that works together to create an atmosphere that is more permissive to information sharing with appropriate safeguards in place. And then also better exploitation of existing data sharing mechanisms and those strong feedback loops, which help organizations to really understand and articulate the benefits of data sharing. Right. Um, okay. And uh, so I just really wanted to sort of maybe, I know we've talked a little bit about the um, government's uh, new floor plan, and that sort of focused a lot on sort of consumer fraud, um, you, know, you know, sort of mom and pop uh, exploitation. That, Thing, but um, also uh, there's been an issue in the UK, at least as far as I understand, about uh, prosecuting corporate fraud. Um, so perhaps we could just go back a little bit just from reading some of your reports um, and sort of get a better understanding of this. I just wanted to start with this sort of uh, legal definition, I'm not sure, but this term identification principle and uh, what that is um, and why it's made it so difficult to prosecute as companies for crimes uh, such as for yeah sure so as you say it, it is in the UK very difficult to hold particularly large corporates to account and particularly for kind of economic crime related misconduct and as you say that's due to the principle in UK law um, called the identification doctrine and this means that um, only the acts of the person who represent what's known as the company's directing mind and will can be attributed to the company so that differs to the approach in the US, for example, where the doctrine uh, known as respondeat superior replies, which means that an, em an employer can in some circumstances be held responsible for the actions of their employee carried out in the course of their employment. So what this means in practice in the UK is that a corporate can only be prosecuted if it can be shown that the most senior member or members of staff were involved in the criminal activity. And in the last few years, this doctrine has become increasingly restrictive, a number of high profile cases where fundamentally the CEO of a company could not be considered the directing mind of will if there is a board of directors that they report to. As you can imagine, then, in a large organisation with decentralised decision making structures and you know, the layers of corporate governance that a large organisation should have, it's nearly impossible to identify that individual who is the directing mind of all of the company and then attribute the criminal conduct to them. So there is really, yeah, really little chance of bringing a prosecution against a company. And that 
again, is particularly relevant in the context of fraud, where there are numbers of types of frauds that really can only be committed in a corporate context or by a company and an individual on their own cannot commit some types of fraud. And so we've ended up with this weird workaround in the UK with uh, what's known as kind of failure to prevent offences, which is an area that I've, I've studied a lot. Um, and these have been introduced for specific types of economic crimes, whereby a company can be held responsible if someone associated with them and acting on their behalf for, for their benefit carries out a crime and the company didn't have adequate procedures in place to prevent that criminal conduct. So we've seen this for bribery uh, and for the facilitation of tax evasion. We're now looking, the UK government is now looking to introduce a similar failure to prevent offence in relation to fraud. Okay, so how, how does that work? Does, does that sort of have to go, obviously it has to sort of go through the legal process to, to change that. So it has to be specific to fraud, I, I imagine, right? So, so how it Absolutely. Works. Yeah, so it's, it's an ongoing process at the moment. Mm -hmm. So we're currently uh, in the middle of understanding more about what the offence would look like. As I speak, it, it's expected that the offence will only apply to large companies, so maybe not to small or, or medium-sized enterprises, um, but it will apply to all large companies and all large companies will be required to have in place reasonable procedures to show that they prevent um, any of their employees or people acting on their behalf from carrying out a fraud that's intended to benefit the company. So yeah, examples could be misrepresentation or mis-selling that the corporate is involved in. Um, and if they didn't have the procedures in place to prevent people working for the company and engaging in those types of activities, they could, in theory, be held liable. I see. And why, why, um, why just large companies, not small companies? Is there a reason for that? That is an excellent question. Um, <laughs> It, it's an interesting approach that the government has taken. I think it probably um, is reflective of the concern that these type of offences may impose an additional burden on companies. And so there is a concern that for small and medium sized companies, uh, the additional burden of uh, complying with it sort of outweighs any positive for them. So th that is the uh, approach that they've taken at the moment. There are discussions as to whether that is actually appropriate, whether it's right to kind of correlate the risk of fraud with the size of the company when there are other risk factors potentially in place. Um, so it is, it's a question that's yet to be fully answered, but we will certainly be watching very closely how that plays out over the coming months. Okay. Um, so I, I don't know, you you mentioned this sort of failure to, to prevent. Um, and I was just going to ask you about uh, corporate criminal offence, which I understand it was part of the Criminal Finances Act in 2017, which I think came on the back of Panama Papers and all this, all this press uh, coverage about uh, tax evasion. Is that related to that, um, uh, or is this is that something different um, in terms of being able to prosecute these for well, in this particular case tax evasion, but you can extend it to fraudulent behaviour as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, as you say, the Criminal Finances Act introduced this offence, which came into force in, in September 2017. Um, and it was really off the back, as you say, of leaks, which showed how some UK institutions, banks, uh, lawyers, wealth managers, for, for example, were enabling offshore tax evasion on a really huge scale. We've seen this with other leaks as well, some of the, the leaks coming out of Swiss banks over the last 10, 20 years, which has shown 
um, banks uh, engaged in activities to help their customers evade tax. And after a lot of these leaks came out and a lot of this information came out about how some institutions were behaving, there wasn't really any mechanism to hold them to account at a corporate level for what they were doing. So the Criminal Finances Act introduced um, what we call the kind of corporate criminal offence, and its long name is the a corporate criminal offence of failure to prevent the facilitation of tax evasion. So it's really designed to capture those advisors, bankers, wealth managers who are actively advising their clients on how to evade tax. So setting up offshore structures to evade tax, for example. And as you say, though, it came in five years ago. It has not been well prosecuted or well enforced at all. Um, yeah, there haven't been any prosecutions yet uh, since 2017. Uh, there have been nearly 70 cases which have been investigated and then dismissed. Um, and there are a number still under investigation, but it's it's certainly not been a huge headline grabbing uh, piece of legislation from an enforcement perspective. So, so the argument there is right. Well, it was intended to change behaviour. We don't necessarily measure um, success by prosecutions. And uh, could you just maybe talk a little bit about that? Why I mean, do we do we need to measure uh, success through prosecutions or not? Um, why haven't there been more prosecutions on the back of this? Yeah, so it's a it's a really interesting area. So as, as you say, yeah, it is claimed that these are about changing behaviours, changing culture. Prosecutions are not a good metric for that. But the research that I've done in this space shows that without enforcement, the impact of these kind of offences, the introduction of these kind of offences, and particularly the ongoing impact is, is pretty limited. And there are a number of reasons that sit behind the lack of prosecutions. Um, as ever, you know, resourcing is a huge issue across the whole criminal justice system in the UK, and this is a victim of that partly. There are also a number of elements in the offence um, that need to be proved to a criminal standard. And that's really challenging. So in order to bring a prosecution, you not only have to pr prove that there was tax evasion going on, but that somebody within the organisation facilitated that tax evasion to a criminal standard. And then you have to look at the procedures that the organisation had in place. So given the complexity of the offence, I think the lack of prosecutions is, is disappointing, but not necessarily surprising. Right. Um, are there any cases that we need to look out for? I mean, are there in you've mentioned a couple of cases that are currently being crossed? So we don't know that anything's coming yet. I have mm -hmm. often been told that the first prosecution will be imminent. I mean, I think it's fair to say that um the Bribery Act, which introduced the failure to prevent bribery offences, um, which was the sort of first of these failure to prevent offences that we saw in the UK, uh, took four or five years to, to kick in for us to get our first proper prosecution. And yeah, there have been a number of prosecutions under that since. So I think it'll be really interesting when we see the first prosecution. I think um, there is some activity going on in the, the tax evasion space, particularly around some of the enablers of tax evasion. That makes me think we are probably not too far away from the first prosecution. But I think that prosecution will be really important for a number of reasons. First, showing that the offence has teeth and that these failure to prevent offences in general have teeth. But also, I think, showing or, or setting a benchmark as to what are the types of controls and procedures that actually it is reasonable for an organisation to, to have in place. And there's a lot of guidance out there. But until we get some prosecutions, 
we don't know what that actually looks like in practice. And I think looking forward to any new failure to prevent fraud offence when it comes in, we're going to have the similar questions, the similar concerns about how will it be enforced, the level of guidance, what does having reasonable procedures to prevent fraud from happening actually mean in practice for organisations and how that might look differently for organisations in different sectors, for example, or with different uh, geographical activities. I think what is quite concerning about this new failure to prevent fraud offence is that the government has already stated in their impact assessment that they expect the number of prosecutions to be low. And as we've seen from our experience with, with other laws, you know, where laws aren't actually enforced, when they don't have teeth, they don't really do much to change behaviour in the long term. So I think any new offence will be really closely scrutinised from an enforcement perspective. Right, interesting. Very long process, obviously. Um, okay, um, we're just, just moving on a bit here. I mean, I know this is sort of a rather big topic, but um, you sort of touched upon it earlier, and I guess it's a major driver behind fraud. But, you know, technology, um, you know, we've written a, a fair amount about it and increasingly writing about uh, how technology is enabling fraudsters to uh, to scam people um, and uh, companies as well. Um, we recently wrote a piece on ChatGPT. Obviously, that's a yeah. big issue and yeah, AI. Um, so, I just wondered what you know, what how, how what you've learned about technology, how it's enabling fraudsters, or how are they? you see them using it more and more? Um, I know AI is, you know, enabling, or at least that's the idea that'll enable um, people with, that aren't particularly tech savvy, but, you know, can just simply type in a few instructions and, and have it, you know, have the ability to 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 code and, and con people. Um, so I just really want to get your input on that and anything that you can talk about and just in regards to the work you're doing on this, you know, you can't have them. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really big area of, of concern and I think a lot of people are trying to predict the future and to predict where the next threat will come from while not right. necessarily understanding the threats that are happening right mm -hmm. now and as you say I hear technology it's advancing at such a rapid pace and you mentioned done some some research on this area and probably within a week of finishing my my research project several new use cases of how the technology and how different types of technology were being used to emerged. And yeah, the area you mentioned AI, chat GPT, and other types of generative AI, creating images, videos, and deep fakes. I think that's really a concerning area because what they enable criminals to do is act fast, reduce some of the barriers to entry. As you said, it, it's very easy to create material through these uh, kind of open source AI tools. And it makes some of the attacks more convincing. So you know, we've seen examples of criminals using ChatGPT to make phishing emails and spear phishing emails in particular more, re more realistic, more targeted. You know, they use AI and, and kind of machine learning to get information from social media, to get information from websites, to make their attacks on, on companies in particular really, really quite sophisticated and getting around some of the controls that companies have in place to detect these types of attacks. You also have examples increasingly of kind of deep fake technology being used and some really terrifying examples of yeah. how that kind of technology is um, getting around some of the advice that we give consumers. So um, I, I, I don't know how prevalent this type of scam is in, in the US, but in the UK, we have um, what we call the high mum scam, where you have a text or a, a WhatsApp message uh, mm -hmm. from someone who claims to be your child. They say they've been mugged. 
they've lost their phone, this is their new number, they really need some money, or they need to pay their rent urgently, can you transfer some money to this account? And, and people fall for these scams all the time. And the advice that's normally given is, if you get a text like this, call the person, or call a known number for the person, you know, make sure it's legitimate which is all very sensible. If you speak to a person, you, you're comfortable that either your child is safe and well, or actually they do need some help and you can arrange that. But what we're seeing is that criminals can take a small sample of somebody's voice from a TikTok, for example, and then generate a deep fake who will answer the phone, uh, speak to the, the fraud victim, convince them that yes, they really are their child. Uh, they really are in trouble. They really need help immediately. So criminals are using sort of some of these techniques that we've been taught to protect ourselves from scams to their own advantage and using technology to kind of subvert everything that we've been taught about how to keep ourselves safe, which is really terrifying. It is. It is. Yeah, especially the, 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 that sort of uh, fake voice uh, yeah. technology. Yeah. Um, Scarily yeah. accurate. <laughs> Makes you just want to hide and uh, it does. Come, out, come outside. <laughs> Go outside of me. Um, Okay, well, that, I think that's probably um, sort of it, Catherine. I'd just like to thank you for taking uh, time to talk to us today and thank our listeners. Um, you can find this podcast along with all other episodes of Fraud uh, Talk on acfe.com, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, this is Paul Kilby signing off. <laughs>